Welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. Today's guest is Dr. Eric Wood, Counseling Center Director at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. Hello, Dr. Wood. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here today. So Dr. Wood is well known as a change agent in the college mental health community. He is the architect of the TCU Comprehensive Collaborative Care Model, which we're going to learn a lot more about today. Your first question is going to be a layered one, and you can decide sort of how you want to answer it because there's so much that I and I think our listeners want to know. But I'd love for you to describe what you're doing there at TCU in terms of this almost sounds like a counseling center without walls kind of approach. And also, if you could describe what some of the drivers of that very interesting approach are. So it's sort of a two-part question, and I'll stop there. Yeah, I appreciate it. And just let me know if I talk too much. But I mean, the start of the drivers that is connected to actually how we develop the model, because really the narrative out there about college mental health is that campuses are being overrun with students with mental health needs and that schools are just incapable of meeting that demand. And so that narrative obviously, you know, can be dangerous because it can erode the confidence that people or stakeholders have in our services. It can also just kind of decrease the morale of the staff. So when we looked at the, actually the data about what's going on on campus, on our campus, but also nationwide, we found that there was actually these three data points. Those data points are actually the basis of our model. So like, for an example, one of the data points from the Center of Collegiate Mental Health, and it was definitely true at TCU, was that counseling centers were spending about 50% of our resources on 20% of our clients. And those clients were really the high-risk clients, and they would come on campus. And usually the counseling center would refer them off campus because they would be on a scope of care. But then the student will still be on campus, still living in the residence hall, still going to classes. And so the people who were concerned would send the student back to the counseling centers, do multiple welfare check, things like that. And so we're still spending a lot of resources on those campus or on those students who may or may not be getting treatment. So that was one driver. The other driver is just kind of the observation, again, true for the nation, also true for TCU, was that any counseling center, a lot of our clients, our current clients, are actually former clients who've been to counseling before. And so that kind of speaks to the issue of capacity, because on one hand, that's great that they're coming back to us. But then it really does beg the question, on the other hand, of what type of aftercare services are we providing? Because if we have a student with like episodic depression and we stop with symptom remissions, it shouldn't be shocked that they're coming back. So we thought, well, what if we have something for those students after they finish counseling? Would they be less likely to reuse counseling? Just to clarify that point. So they continued to need their needs addressed, but they were going back for the same treatment mm-hmm. that they received before. Yeah. And that was a huge problem capacity. We had these students coming back to counseling for like the same issue. Got it. So that was one driver. The other driver is just a stress level. If you look at the counseling center staff, they reporting is a highly stressful job, but one of the biggest sources of the stress were these unscheduled appointments. And these were students who would just come in and say, I want to be seen right now, or students who are in crisis. And yeah, if you can imagine being on a job and all of a sudden you have to interrupt your schedule for an unscheduled meeting, that would be stressful, but that was tend to be the life of the counseling center staff person. So that was the other driver. 
And the fourth driver was just that we were spending a lot of clinical intervention time on students who had subclinical issues. So maybe like homesickness or procrastination, time management. We saw a huge chunk of students coming to the counseling center for those issues. But then are they really best served by a PhD licensed therapist? Or is there another office on campus that could better serve those students? Or how can we collaborate to better serve those students? So those are the four drivers. And honestly, that's what the collaborative care model is, is that we have schools who are working with us and they want to replicate part of our model. And what we tell them is you don't have to do everything that TC does. The idea is we have those four objectives based on the data. And this is how do you respond to those objectives? So like if you want to do peer support, which is how we respond to the idea that students keep coming back to counseling, where another school they might do it a completely different way. They might do individual self-management. But the idea is we both have the same objective is how can we provide recovery or aftercare services to students. So those are the four main objectives to our model. So let me ask you then, you mentioned peer support. I know the answer to this, but can you describe to for us what the major components of this model are? And I know there's some very interesting pieces of this that I think we'd all like to hear more about. Yeah, so just real quick, like, so like I said, the four data point and I'll elaborate on the peer support. So the first one is the fact that we spend 50% of resources on 20% of clients. Our answer to that was, can we have specialized services on campus through our partners in the community to have services for those 20% for their students with high mental health needs? The second one with the peer support is, we know that students are coming back. So how can we provide recovery and aftercare services for those students. The third one is that with the staff burnout is we actually compartmentalize like how can we have dedicated crisis and triage services so our staff therapists aren't doing that. And the fourth one is, yeah, we partner with campus providers or campus partners to have these programs for students with subclinical needs. So those are our four main components to our model. And so to elaborate on the peer support, Again, we pretty much use the mindset that's very common in substance use. If you know anything about substance use, you know if you have an individual who's in the middle of the addiction cycle, and then all of a sudden they go to the clinical intervention phase, and if that works, but then they stop cold turkey, everyone knows what's going to happen. So if they do counseling for a month and they just stop, most people, you don't have to be a therapist, knows that that student could go well back back into the addiction cycle, which means they might need clinical intervention again. So in the substance use literature, the idea is that clinical intervention is just a phase. After you do the clinical intervention, there is that mindset that you are in recovery and that peer support is just normative, whether it be AA or any other meetings. But anyone who's in recovery would tell you that that peer support is really, really important. It didn't end at the clinical intervention. So we took that same philosophy and said, can we use that for other mental health domains, not just substance use, but for depression, for anxiety, for people who experience traumatic event. And there really are peer support communities. And that's been the biggest difference. Like other schools, they might have peer education where they train a student to provide education. Our focus is on the community. So each peer support community, the student-led, we foster things to foster the community, like we'll buy them brunch once a month. They all have group meetings and things like that. And the idea is they have that peer support if they have that connection with peers that are positive and also they can identify with. Based on that, then they're probably less likely to come back and use clinical interventions, which is what we're finding. Let me ask you one question there. The AA communities 
which are really the philosophy behind a lot of the peer work that we see in in other domains, certainly in, in college mental health. That was a big signature program. But, right, they don't always work for students of certain age, correct? Exactly. And that's one of our philosophy, even with our specialized programs is, that's why being on campus is so important because, yeah, if they go to the AA meetings, a lot of times what they'll say is, it's great, but they might, she might be in group with someone who has grandkids going through a divorce and they just can't relate to them. So they don't really feel that identification piece to a film, even though it's a great service. But our peer support communities, they're peers, so they're just other TCU students, not just college students, TCU students, and it's on our campus. So they have that universality, that identification piece. And honestly, that's where the magic happens, is that they can really identify and relate to that group and that other person can identify with whatever they're struggling. So we have different domains. We have over 20 peer support communities. And that has been by far what students says has been the most benefit is that they can actually connect with peers that they relate to. And Eric, that's both the original aftercare model, right, that you've adapted to other general mental health and also preliminary work with peer groups, correct? For students who maybe have not yet become part of the clinical community. Yeah. So that's one of the interesting things is like we actually, when I was talking to my staff, we envisioned it to be an aftercare program and we envisioned it like, okay, once we're done with therapy, we accomplish our counseling goals, then we'll refer them to the community. What we found is that a lot of students were coming to counseling and elected to join the peer support community instead of counseling. Like even before they're like, that is what I need. And then when we did our initial study and data, they were saying that actually met their needs for contacting us. So the students were actually saying for a lot of them that the peer support community actually met their needs for contacting the center other than counseling, which to us was a welcome finding. We weren't planning on it. That wasn't an intention. But yeah, we do have students who would just go right to the peer support community. Okay, great. That's an interesting finding because we were actually just doing a big paper on peer support, the Mary Christie Institute that we're going to be releasing soon, commissioned by the Rutterman Family Foundation. And and we typically see peer support used as a bridge to clinical care or a way to bring people in. But we are continuing to see what you're seeing as well and experiencing firsthand, which is for some subpopulation group, for some issues, this could be an alternative, correct? Oh, absolutely. And I think the, the feedback we're hearing the student is just the focus. Like a lot of peer programs, the focus is like an education or the meeting. And we say all this time, we use a saying like the meetings that where the magic happens is what happens after. Like these peer support communities, they have group meets. And our staff are on the group means they're just, you know, obviously they don't DM, but we see the messages and it'd be like two o'clock in the morning and they're giving encouraging messages with them. The idea is that the students find they're identifying with the community and it's a community based on a certain thing that they're struggling with. And there's literature saying that a community really buffers and is a protective factor for a lot of different things. And that's what we're seeing. And so the idea that students will come and say, I want the community and it's an easier sell than it is to a meeting or sometimes with the stigma of counseling that some students have, that is a, a, a preferred alternative. And so we're definitely seeing that. That's great. And it speaks to this sense of belonging, of course, and the opposite of that being, you know, the loneliness and isolation that people have been feeling. But it's important to note, too, that it's not an independent peer program. It's peer programs that are included 
in this comprehensive model that you have. So you obviously have a close affiliation with, I imagine, the student peer leaders that are running these groups, but you had mentioned that along with some of your staff, or at least in connection with your staff. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, that's like one of the objectives of our model is to have these kind of peer support communities. And yeah, so each peer support community, even though they're student-led, and even though we have a lot of trainings that this is not therapy, each community has a staff support. And I can tell you it's voluntarily, like I don't make my staff do it. So when we first started, there was, you know, how is this going to work a lot of those questions? But now literally every single person on my staff supports a peer support community. And because it's not therapy, we do partner with other offices that aren't therapists. They can support a peer support community. We obviously train on what to happen in the crisis and how to refer students to resources and things like that. But it's, yeah, it's been a great experience. While we're sticking on peer support, so I want to talk about the partnerships part piece too, which is mm-hmm. really cool. But you've gone beyond, way beyond sort of, and again, this isn't clinical treatment, but it has a lot to do with mental health. But you're also really expanding into just general social groups, right? Or academic groups. It sounded to me like you were really reaching out to a whole lot of different domains within the university itself, not just remaining even in student affairs, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, we talked about having a peer support community for like our medical school. I know our pre-health major, we had discussions with him about it. Our international students have one called Home Away From Home. One of our most popular ones is a supportive gaming community, which isn't like mental health domain per se. But what we find is a lot of students that join that community, the counseling center with never interacted with them. Because traditionally, the counseling centers have had a hard time connecting with students who identify as gamers. But on the flip side of it, there's a lot of risk factors as someone who isolates and does that for hours and things like that. So in that community actually has seven, I think, different sub-branches of it. And we're seeing students, so they would never have interacted with the counseling center had it not been for these communities. So I know that one of the underpinnings of the model is to go beyond, as you said, the narrative that is clearly the reality, which is the capacity problems. And there seems to be some some paralysis in places around how you can actually serve the many students that are, are demanding services, right? So you talk a lot about how this counters that. We talked about some of the peer work that you're doing. And I wanted to ask you more about your partnerships with other institutions in the community. You touched on that, but that's a big component in helping with the capacity issue, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's what we say. If you look at the data and look at even our model, I think the one thing that's obvious that counts concerns is you can't do it alone. Because the first part of the narrative that we are seeing increase in demand an overwhelming, unprecedented increase in demand. That part's true. But the other part is there are ways to respond. And I think one of the ways to respond is we have community partners. And I would even say, because even in rural areas, because, you know, the previous institution we were in, rural area didn't have anyone. And the community providers were still willing to help us out because it's just not something people have thought about. So like, for an example, we have a treatment center is just 10, 15 minutes away and they have an IOP, which is pretty much nine hours of therapy. It's really designed for students who either about to go to inpatient because maybe we'll say suicide ideation or they're stepping down from inpatient. Well, traditionally, that's an example of what I said before. They're beyond the scope of care of the traditional counseling center. But those students, again, will still live on campus. So if we went to that treatment center, we asked, what do you think about doing an IOP on our campus? And it's their program. 
We have an understanding and contracts and everything. It's literally just their program. All they we give them is a space. They have their own therapist. Look, we literally just give them a space. But that has made such a difference because the students can come and they know they're going to be in the room with other TCU students. So they're not going to be in the group with someone who's, you know, has grandkids going through divorce, things like that. And it's 10 is on campus, so it's not away. So that stigma of actually going to the hospital or convincing families to send them students to a mental health facility, we're actually saying we have this program on our campus. So we find a lot of students more willing to do it on our campus. And I would think from an academic persistence perspective, we talk a lot about how when students have to take a leave of absence or there's a hospitalization, it's an abrupt removal from their college life and certainly their classes. But in your experience, this has been a counter to that, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have like six of these programs. One of them was like a DBT program. And before the pilot, we had 24 students and all of them would have probably had to take a medical leave. And during that program, 22 of them stayed on campus because it's not just for us. What we do is we have a very active dean of students and that helps with the faculty and things. So when a student signs up for the program, they sign releases for us, the treatment center and the deans of students. So we all get together and communicate because, yeah, they go off campus a lot of times for an IMP that could be two weeks. They'll drop out of school to do that. Or we don't know if they, when they're coming back, when they're done and things like that. So having that communication has been a really benefit because then we know, okay, the students starting this program. We also know how they're doing. They get the academic support from the deans of students who communicate with their faculty that there's a personal medical situation. And we know when they're finished, so we know we can keep serving them because we know exactly when they're done. But yeah, a lot of our students who stay on campus because of these programs. That's that's great. You know, I had said earlier that you're like the counseling center without walls. And I want to ask you a little bit about that concept because I don't think it's that common that there's such coordination as I know your programs are with all sorts of other academic departments within a university. You just gave a great example that students that would be in your care and then go to treatment would also be engaged with their academic advisors. And everyone is sort of on the same page in regard to that student. And I think that's terrific, but I think it's rare. You also talked about something you said to me prior to this interview about how when you engage with a student and you realize that maybe they don't need to be with you, they maybe need to be somewhere else. Yeah. So like a common example is we success coaches. That's kind of a big thing with the universities to have success coaches. And what those are are individuals that help students achieve their goals. And some of them use them for like academic goals, but a lot of times they're specialized in like time management and procrastination. So TCU, we just started to have a success coach, a student success office, which other schools are doing. So if a student comes in to us and they really struggle with procrastination and time management, it really is their best interest to go to a success coach. Yeah, it helps with our capacity, of course, but you have these individuals who train and that's literally their protocol is for people with time management. That's what their assessments, that's what their instruments and materials use. So we're able to better serve them by saying we connect with the success coach and we collaborate them. And that actually is one example. I think the biggest example also is homesickness. Every year we see just a flood of first year students talk about homesickness. But then it's like, who's really best? And this is where, you know, we tell people you have to get past the traditional way of thinking. Because yeah, they could do therapy, but if you know anything about homesickness, the kind of the cure, quote unquote, for homesickness is to develop a routine and to establish new attachments. That's really what they need. 
So are they going to get that from individual therapy, like developing new attachments? Yeah, we can kind of help them and guide them. But we have a very active student activities department. And there's literally students there who want to meet other students, um, whether it be from the organizations they have there. So we have collaboration with them where we can actually guide the students to that office and they can kind of connect with other peers and settle a team. So those are two different examples of how we get other offices and student fairs that literally better serve their students. They do better serve their, they can do those better than individual counselor can. But then on the same time, it frees up our capacity. Those are great examples. But I was just thinking about the recent, maybe you saw it, the Lumina and Gallup came out with a huge survey of, of students and it showed that the number one reason for stopping out among this survey group was not financial, but was actually emotional and behavioral health. So when you think about how important that common goal is on a college campus, you know, you really got to get every community behind that. So it sounds like you've got a good example um, for the rest of us on it, for sure. And also, you said you have a big group that's just involved in, in fun activities. Yeah. So one of our program, and again, this is just kind of things that came up with the collaboration, is actually student-led. And they started a program, they liked our peer support model, especially with the group needs and interaction built in the community. But their feedback, which is, wasn't a criticism, but those were for mental health domain. So their program that they started, and obviously we fostered it, was could we do something like that, but do it instead of for mental health domains, do it for, there's three of them. It's called Fraud Connect Master Program. One of them is for athletic events. One of them is for campus meals. One of them is for campus events like concerts and things like that. And they're pretty much just group meets. So for students on campus, and especially new students, says, I need someone to go to the game with. They can sign up for the group meet. And there's literally a group of students there who are looking for students to go to the game with. And we vet them and everything to make sure it's not discipline problems, things like that. And they sign terms and conditions, but they just can connect with other students and go to the football game with. Same thing with campus meals, same thing with concert events. So that was started from students in our business school. It wasn't even our idea, but again, that's just an example. It didn't cost us any more money. I mean, we did the marketing, the flyers, and we spread it out, but it's having an impact on students' lives just by connecting them with other students. How open-minded. This is really, that's a great term for what you're doing there. I think it's great. You're, you're listening to all these ideas and it's very student-driven. My last question to you, and you mentioned this before, but I know it's a big issue for a lot of people that listen, and that is burnout. And it's the stress that your colleagues and your staff are experiencing. Tell us again what strategy you're using there. I know it's all related. Yeah. So when you look at the source of burnout, like I said, the biggest source of burnout was the unscheduled appointments. So that students who just walk in and said, I want to be seen today, which is the norm. I mean, if you have 18, 24 year olds, a lot of times going to the doctor is hard. So going to a therapist is even hard. Like they thought about it for months and then all of a sudden they have a day where they decide to go. Or students who are legitimately in crisis and need to be seen right there. So traditionally, the model is you take a staff therapist and each staff therapist has to wear just different clinical hats. So at some points of the day, they're the intake therapist or a crisis counselor, or a group counselor. They're doing all these different roles. And basically what that means is they don't have time for anything else. So traditionally, like we had a staff person, we said, okay, on Monday mornings, you're the, the crisis counselor. Well, if a student came in on crisis and saw that staff on Monday morning at best, I mean, at best, in a traditional way, any follow-up would have to wait till the next morning, Monday morning, when that student was a crisis counselor again. And obviously, you know, crisis don't work like that. So what we did is that we hired a group of therapists and that's all they do. They don't have a caseload. And we just took a step of faith and said, you know, 
you're going to have students who walk in because all the data says it, but that's what they do. They're there for students who want to do an intake or a triage for a first appointment. And they're also there for students who are in crisis. So having this team of therapists, that's literally all they do. First of all, it creates a customer experience, a satisfaction experience. Because if a student meets with one of these crisis counselors, that crisis counselor can say, I'll see you tomorrow. And I've gotten so much feedback about how the student was not expecting to hear that from a college campus or the next day or the next day after that until the things are, are stabilized. So it makes the student experience a whole lot better. But then the fact that we have them, we just compartmentalize that, that frees up all the other therapists because those eight hours that they were doing on the crisis counselor slot, that now opens up for individual counseling. And so those slots and offer more individual counseling slots that way. And they're less stressed because my staff therapists can really look at their schedule and theoretically all the appointments are scheduled appointments, which is rare for college counselings. And it actually increases that kind of sense of control, which reduces that kind of burnout. And then from my staff therapist that we said that you don't have a caseload, they love not having a caseload. Like they're, that's their personality. They love the fact that all they can do is just whatever walks in the day and they can see a student through a crisis. You know, they can actually see them through it instead of actually referring or hoping it works out. So you're providing some variation for them as professionals as well. So, and that's mm-hmm. a growth and whatnot, and is a counter to the stress. So mm-hmm. these are super creative strategies that you're using to address this perennial college mental health crisis with the demand for services, certainly outpacing capacity. And at the same time, a treatment gap that exists for students who aren't seeking help. So everything you've described for us today really does work to address those issues. So congratulations to you on this. I, I really hope that more people are learning about what you've done. Again, as you said, not that they need to do everything TCU does, but there's a lot of really good learning here. So I know you've got a website and I know you do a number of presentations. You actually have been working with other schools, correct? Yeah, I think of the day, a lot of schools have reached out to us. We've done training. I think we train theory. I know it's over a hundred different institutions about very aspects of our model because it is, you know, a lot of schools, especially during COVID, if you were open, like some of the schools who were remote didn't see a spike in numbers, but the schools who were open, we're talking about unprecedented demands. And so our model, I'm not saying like we're the end all be all, like we have the key to the puzzle or anything that, but we have increased our capacity the students have given a positive response and feedback. And the model worked with the collaborations with the community. It didn't really cost us any money. In fact, we have actually used this to have a funding source for like grants and donations. So that's been a very positive thing. So it's definitely made a difference on our campus. And for a lot of schools who've used part of us, we've gotten positive feedback. And again, that's our passion to help schools do this. Again, you want to do all everything we do. But there's definitely need out there and most schools really see how this is effective. Absolutely. And the fact that it is not an added cost to the budget must make your administrators very happy, I can imagine. Yes, they're very happy about that part. (laughs) So it was great to talk to you, Eric. Really best of luck with all of your great work. Dr. Eric Wood, the Counseling Center Director at Texas Christian University. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. 
Thanks so much for listening. 